I have it on reliable notice that a lot of you woke up crabby this morning. That's what I heard. Uh, so we'll need some we'll need some good warm up uh, to get ready for the sermon, get the juices flowing. So, uh, what's one thing that you can do this week uh, to bring more meaning and goodness to and through your life? Give me some ideas. Just one thing. Help others. Sure. That's good. You're going to go out and help, help someone you wouldn't otherwise help, probably. What else? Donate money. Donate some money. Yeah. Uh, Jesus talks about money more than any other uh, moral issue in Scripture and uh, tells one parable. He says, use money to, to make friends. What better is there to use money for, right? Uh, what else? Read the Bible. That's going to help. I hear it's a good book. That's what they, that's what they say. Uh, yeah. You're going to play with your kids, and that's going to make your life better. Is that going to make the kid's life better, Andrea? <laughs> she is pleading the fifth. All right. All right. So we have some ideas. So turn to somebody next to you and say, you can do this. Get the faith on a little bit. You can do this. All right. Now I think we're feeling it a little better. You can do it. I think we can pull it off. Anybody can do it. Jesus says that the difference between a wise person and a foolish person is that the wise person follows through and the foolish person does not. That's the, that's the entire difference. That's the whole difference between wisdom and foolishness. So uh, follow through on some of these cool ideas. Uh, let's ask a warm-up question that is pertinent to the sermon. Uh, we're in this sermon series uh, called How to Help the Devil. I'm playing to my strengths. I'm a so-so Christian. I would make a really great devil. Um, and uh, we're taking a look at different ways in which <clears throat> the devil fools people so that we'll be a little wiser, a little sharper. We'll be able to uh, resist his schemes against us. That's the idea anyway. Um, and uh, the, uh, the trick of this sermon series is that in a minute, I'm going to switch my voice, my perspective, and I'm going to start talking to you as if I were a devil, as if I were a senior devil coach, and you were my junior devil protégés. I think some of you are good at that. Um, uh, and just kind of uh, use this motif that I'm stealing from a famous Christian author named C.S. Lewis, who wrote a book in the 1940s called Screwtape Letters in the voice of a senior devil coach by the name of Wormwood, writing advice to his junior devil nephew named Screwtape. And it was a great book. Helped a lot of people precisely because it just kind of helps you know a little bit how the enemy thinks so that you're smarter uh, and you can go through life without being fooled so much. We've been studying all sorts of ways that, uh, that the devils go about fooling us. And today I want to just kind of wrap it all up and talk about devilish style, you know. So let me ask you this question to get the juices flowing. In what tone does Satan speak to the world? What's the, what's the tone that he uses when he speaks into, what is that? Al? Mockery. <clears throat> Mockery. That's not a bad one. Yeah. Warm but non-committal. That's very interesting. You could unpack that. Satan speaks to the world in a tone that's very warm but non-committal. He doesn't promise much. Is that what you mean? What is it? Flattery. 
flattery. Is that a mockery? Flattery. Interesting. Uh, evil cousins. Mockery and flattery. What else we got? What tone does Satan speak to the world? Enticing. Enticing. We know him to be a tempter. Yeah, so enticing, sure. Plus, that's a word that's fun to say, enticing. Sounds like something that should be on a particularly devilish cake. It's my devil foods cake with vanilla enticing. I'm here every week. One more. What tone does Satan speak to the world? Yeah. With lies, with lies. He's, he's definitely a trickster. He's a deceiver. Okay, well, keep that in the back of your head. Um, I've explained to you the sermon series. We've discovered along the way that Satan's number one trick to deceive us is to get us to do destructive things that we think are virtuous things, right? So this is, this is the deception. This is uh, the trick. We are told by the Apostle Paul that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He doesn't appear to you like an evil, ugly demon. He appears to you like an angel robed in light. And, uh, and uh, it's a costume. It's a masquerade. Uh, the way he masquerades as an angel of light is that he makes you focus on one virtue in a way that excludes other virtues, Right? So that in doing the one virtue, you think you're being really virtuous, whereas in fact you're being narrow and negligent. You're forgetting all the other stuff that's supposed to go with it. And this is his model. This is his, his motif, his methodology. And it's a little bit like eating only one healthy thing, but no other healthy thing. Like we've used this analogy in every sermon. Imagine that if you want to eat a healthy diet and somebody told you that spinach was really, really healthy, and so you ate spinach only. Well, eventually you'd get sick and die, although spinach is super, super healthy. If you're going to be a healthy person, you need the full range of goodies uh, in, in your diet. Um, Satan wants you to be disintegrated. God wants you to be integrated, right? Integrated means to connect everything together. God wants all virtues to connect in you in a really healthy, whole way. Satan wants you to be disintegrated. He wants you to do one or two virtues and to neglect all the other stuff. So you are non-integrated. You are disintegrated. That's the basic idea. All right, so we've, just, we've talked about any number of things. I'm going to review all the weeks that we've done in the sermon series. Uh, in a second, and the point is to get a feel for how the devil works, right? We've talked about the methodology. We've been analytical. We've been lawyerly. Now I just want to be impressionistic. I want you to get a feel for the devil's style, and now I'm going to start coaching you to get a feel for the devil's style. You have to put on your junior devil caps. Everybody, one, two, three. Okay, all right, there you go. You got the idea. Yeah, you've gotten eerily good at that over the last six or eight weeks. So we're feeling this a little too much, maybe. Um, all right, so week one of the sermon series. I don't know, the devils give sermons. My lecture series, devil's lecture, right? All right, my, uh, my young devilish protégés. We talked about disintegration and how that is our whole strategy to ruin Christians and to ruin well-meaning people on earth. 
we want to disintegrate. Uh, the Bible says that love rejoices with the truth, and we want to encourage people to choose either love or truth, but not both, right? Pick the one or the other. If you're all truth, then you can just mow people down with your discipline and your strictness, right? You don't let them breathe. There's no humanity in it. But if you're no truth and all love and kindness and compassion, you just empathize and sympathize, but there's no discipline and there's no strength in a person's life. And you can ruin somebody that way. If you own a dog and you do only love and compassion and no discipline and truth, that dog becomes neurotic. Yes. Everybody's shaking their head. Yeah, we might have some of those dogs here in the building this morning. Look around. Um, and that's, that's basically what the devil tries to do um, uh, with people. And so as devils, we need to be good at that. If somebody's being very truthful, we say, where's the love? If somebody's being very loving, um, you know, we'll say, where's the truth? We'll just... <clears throat> cause them to neglect and to disintegrate. Uh, the most powerful lie that we tell people is partly true, right? The most powerful life, we, the most satanic life we give people is a life that is partly virtuous, right? A partly virtuous life will be more satanic than an entirely uh, dishonest and ugly life. Everybody following? And we have to get really good at it. Our job is to corrupt, to contaminate. Not to entirely counterfeit, but just to contaminate that which is good. In this pursuit, here's a trick that we all want to get good at as devilish protégés. We want to get people to pursue a God that makes sense to them. The truth is that if God makes entire sense to you, then that is not a God worth worshiping, because a God is smarter than you, right? More complex, richer, more robust, higher than you. There are things about following God that humans are not supposed to understand entirely. We can exploit that. We can exploit that and get people to over-focus on the one thing they do understand, and to neglect all that stuff that they don't. Everybody following? Give me a cackle. That was week one. In week two, we talked about the virtue of peace and how we want to encourage humans to see peace as a good unto itself. We want humans to make peace, particularly with the devil. You might remember that in that lecture we talked about World War II history and the way that the, uh, the Allied powers before the war made peace with Hitler. Neville Chamberlain went home from Munich with a peace treaty and said, we have guaranteed peace in our time. And a few weeks later, Hitler was just marauding across Europe. Uh, if you make peace with the devil, if we fool people into making peace with the devil, uh, then they're going to be passive and they're going to let us do whatever we want. Right? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. We want people to think only about peacemaking at all costs with anyone, with any corruption. Just be nice. Just be nice. Just live at peace with everyone. Just be nice. And then we got them. Then we got them. 
Because if they want to be virtuous in the world, they're going to have to stand up and be rude to somebody at some point. They're going to have to fight back at some point unless we convince them otherwise. Got it? Peace unto itself. Peace always with anything and everyone. Fool them into thinking that's a Christian virtue. Jesus warned his followers, from the time of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been advancing by force, and it takes a forceful person to get a grip on it. We want to take force right out of spiritual life. We want to replace it with a passive mamby-pamby peace. We want a bunch of nice wet noodles. One, two, three. Okay, week number three, we talked about the virtue of identity, by which we mean self-identity. And I taught you how to use identity to thwart growth and wisdom in people. We've done a great job with identity in culture today. We've convinced people to be true to their self. True to their self. (laughs) I love that phrase. Be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. Because, you know, yourself is awesome. There could be no wrong in yourself. Am I right? All right. If you think about it, how do you define identity? Identity is that about someone that does not change, right? That's why we use fingerprints, right? It's something about a person that won't change. That's why you take photographs and put them on your ID because your appearance is not going to change too terribly much. Uh, no matter what hair dye you use or surgeon you visit. Um, uh, Social security numbers are supposed to follow you your whole life, right? There's something about you that does not change. Well, Jesus teaches people that anything about you can be changed. So Christian identity is an interesting sort of anti-identity, right? To have a Christian identity is to have the identity of a child, What kind of identity does a nine-year-old child have? Well, the fundamental identity of a child is that next year they'll be different. And the year after that, different again. And a child really has no idea what they're going to become when they grow up. And that's the glory of being a child. And so it's this sort of juvenile, childish identity that Jesus teaches people to have, you know, in... Uh, One of his uh, apostles, John, said, we do not know what we're becoming. We only know that when we see Jesus, we will be like him in some way. We're going to grow up to look like our ancestor did a little bit somehow, right? So at best, we see through a mirror darkly, as the apostle Paul put it. There is nothing about you that cannot change. Nothing that you should hold on to in an identification sort of way. In fact, the scripture makes clear to people that they can be dead, which is as fundamental an identity as you're likely to ever get, and then be made alive again. Christians are going to celebrate that Easter holiday in a couple of weeks. We hate that one. We had them right where we wanted them, buried in the rock. And then his identity changed. And somehow he expected it all along. He expected the change, right? Anyway, we want to preach a gospel of identity to the world, right? Where the goal is for them to honor themselves in a way that precludes, that prevents change and growth, right? We want to make 
uh, following God, a journey of self-discovery, right? And we want to convince them that they've already discovered their self, right? So we can use identity in a, a very uh, big way. Um, Christian identity assumes change. Satanic identity precludes change. Use it. One, two, three. In week four, we talked about love. Now, you might think, devils, that it is impossible to use love against people. Impossible to use love to ruin Christians. But you would be wrong because love is a very rich and robust thing. And what we want to do is to convince people that use a disintegrated love, right? Because love has all sorts of faces and all sorts of expressions, uh, Jesus says that the highest form of love is dying for someone and loving your enemy. He said, if you want to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, love your enemies. Well, we want to take that right out of people's hearts. We want people to disintegrate love, to forget that part of it, and to instead love people, you know, that they like and that like them. And if we're smart, we can take that sort of limited love and we can turn it into a really powerful obsessive virtue. For instance, what's important to me is my family. I'm just gonna love my family. What could be wrong about living for my family? Well, actually a lot, because your family might not include any enemies, right? And, and to be a world-changing Christian lover, you gotta go out and love your enemies. Your family might contain some enemies, in which case we can work on that in a different way. Um, we preach a great gospel of love on the earth, my devilish protégés. We have all sorts of slogans, you know, love songs, love stories. What kind of love is a love song about? Loving your enemies? Selfless love? No, it's romantic love, which is very closely linked to that other thing we like to corrupt, sex. Uh, love stories, what are they about? You're going to go to the theater, you're going to watch a love story. What is it about? Dying for someone? Maybe if it's a historical you know, war story or something like that. But again, it's sort of romantic. This is the love that we glorify, the romantic love, because it's exciting, it's exhilarating, and it involves a lot of self-expression, and you get a lot out of it. You know, in truth, humans don't marry people they love. Humans marry people they like. And then a few years down the line, they realize that they're going to have to grow to love them and actually sacrifice themselves for their mate. And that's where the Godly stuff starts, and we want to sneak in there and break that up as soon as possible. But disintegrated love can be a powerful way to prevent people from integrated love. Right? If we get people to obsess on one kind of love only, to think about that 90% of their lives, or to think about loving one group of people, caring for only one group of people, then they will necessarily become narrow and unhealthy. We can use love. We've used love really, really well in culture, my young devilish soldiers. One, two, three. 
Uh, so too, we talked about the power of faith to cripple people. Now, this is really interesting. This is a great way to ruin Christians especially uh, because uh, faith is incredibly powerful. And if we come across passionate Christians, they will try to live by faith. Those Christians at Blue Water have a saying. They say faith is trying. We hate that kind of faith, devils. We hate that kind of faith. But we can ultimately twist it to our ends because if Christians are living on faith, if they're taking a lot of risks, if they're being really generous and sacrificial with their lives, they are living by the guidance that God gives them and we can disappoint them, then their disappointment will be in proportion to their faith. Great faith can easily be used by us to produce great disappointment. And few humans survive great disappointment. So we can use great faith. Where we see it, we don't necessarily like it, but we want to turn it into disappointment. What we want is people who have great faith in outcomes instead of great faith in God. Right? So when people take a leap of faith, when they're trying to do something glorious for God, we want to get in there and tell them exactly what's going to happen. We want to give them a dream instead of a calling. We want to give them a, a specific vision instead of obedience. Right? And in that subtle way, we can set them up for disappointment. Because very few things in life work out exactly like the humans expect. And we want to make them feel like God has failed them. This is classic. This is classic. Works all the time, particularly for people who live with great faith and try to perform miracles. So, faith. Learn how to use it. One, two, three. Guys are great. Jesus made clear that he wanted his followers to be very powerful individuals. He talks about power quite a bit. He gives his disciples power over all oh, sicknesses and, and demons. In the Old Testament, people got power over governments and histories and peoples. You know, Christians are supposed to be super influential people on earth. And we can use that sense of empowerment against them. All we have to do is convince them to use power for control instead of merely using power for influence. There's a great deal of difference between influencing someone and controlling someone. Worldly power is all about control. All about control. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. Jesus refused to control anybody but used his power only to serve people. He came at it from below. It's very easy to get humans to use power from above. Humans have a great number of institutions and organizations dedicated to controlling other humans. And left to their own devices, they always become controlling. We talked about the scripture story from the life of King David. Do you remember this? David took a census. He counted the people of Israel because he wanted to be able to tax them efficiently and to draft soldiers into his army. Until that time, offerings uh, were free. 
And what he would do is kind of blow a trumpet, and the tribes would send military volunteers to help him, right? It was all about influence and leadership, and David just tried to get organized about it because Israel had a, a security problem. There were a lot of enemies surrounding it at the time. He says, you know what? I'm just going to control this a little better for the sake of security, which is a very justifiable excuse. In cultures today, people think nothing of census, censuses, nothing of taxations, nothing of draft, all sorts of vessels of control. But in that day, when David even flirted with the idea, God went ballistic and sent a plague on Israel to make sure that they learned really quickly not to mess around with controlling other people. The difference between the two historical epochs tells you how far we devils have come in institutions of control, right? Um, and in times of great insecurity, in times of great fear, we devils can tempt people to use power to control others. It's really easy. It's really easy. I think we've made great gains in that. Give yourself a hand. Control. Do not serve. We want people to have no choice. We want to make them feel forced into doing things because our goal is to develop weak puppets. God's goal is to develop free individuals. The scripture says, uh, he whom the spirit frees is free indeed. God does not give you a spirit of fear, but a spirit of self-control, right? And so we want to subtly teach people that they have no control over themselves, their own lives. Anyway, uh, go listen to that lecture. Um, but use, uh, use insecurity in people to make them controllers uh, as much as you can. And week seven, we talked about using scripture as a great tool for devils. Disintegrated scripture. See, the thing about the Bible, it's a great book, but it's a book. Right? And if you're going to understand one part of it, you kind of need to understand all of it. You need to understand the sweep of the story, the way that God's people start as little babies and by the New Testament become mature and able to understand things a little bit better. It's a, it's a sweep. It's an arc. <clears throat> That's an integrated view. A disintegrated view is just to pick your favorite verse and make the most of it, just to snag a... a a passage out of context and wrap it up in a nice bow and use it to control people uh, if you can. You will notice, devils, that nothing is easier for us than using Scripture to beat up the faithful. You will notice if you have read Scripture, and every devil, devil needs to be an expert in Scripture, everyone. This is a great tool for us. You will notice, if you've read Scripture, that Jesus' main opponents in the gospel stories are always the religious experts and the teachers of the scripture, right? The sinners actually kind of liked him, but the really religious scripture Bible-based people argued with him all the time, and so he would have to outduel them, tell them. You will notice, if you've read the stories, my young devils, that when Satan tempted Jesus in his 40 days in the wilderness, he did it by quoting scriptures at Christ himself. It is written that if the anointed one cast himself down, his, 
God will send angels to lift him up lest his foot strike a stone. So throw yourself off this high place, Jesus. Satan himself using scriptures to try to deceive the Christ. Scripture is a great tool. There is a strong devilish tradition in the use of scripture. I want everybody to understand this and get good with scripture, devils. Huh? Come on. Read your Bible, demons. Jesus, who knew scripture really, really well, responded in kind. Ah, it is also written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Right? So I'm not going to play your game. Your view of scripture, Satan, is disintegrated. My view of scripture, Satan, is integrated. That's what Jesus said. Dang it. He was good. But most humans are not that good. You can justify anything by wrapping it in a scripture verse. Right? What humans need are people who, who are wise in the ways of scripture. All scripture. And uh, they are fortunately fairly few relative to uh, people who have just snatches of knowledge about Scripture. We want to make Bible lawyers, right? Uh, A good lawyer can argue for any point of view. And to be a good lawyer, you need to know the law really, really well. If you're a good Bible lawyer, you can argue almost any point of view but you need to know the Bible really, really well, right? So we want people to learn the Bible as lawyers. Jesus wants people to use uh, uh, the Bible to, to live and to spread the kingdom, which is an entirely different thing. If there are any lawyers in the crowd, Jesus loves you too. I'm just making an illustration. Back to double voice. All right. There's our review of uh, the lectures. Uh, do you feel like you're more equipped as devils in the world in this lecture series? Sadly, yes. All right, good, good. I like this spirit of confusion that I've managed to sow into Blue Water Mission. That's great. So by reviewing all of this thing, we should be able to kind of answer the first question. Think of all the things that we've learned and how Satan's goal is to kind of disintegrate one virtue from the other, one piece of scripture one from other, one piece of love from the other pieces of love, to tell lies that are partially true. If we get the hang of that, right, by reviewing all this, we should get a feel for the style of devils in the world. And I just want to make sure everybody has a feel for that style. So I'll ask you again, what's the tone in which Satan speaks to the world? Come on, this is, this is the final exam. You get to grow up to be mature devils if you get this. In what tone does Satan speak to the world? However will work for each person, right? He's, he's flexible. He's flexible. I think, that's good. I will give you a D for devil. <laughs> What's that? He speaks in a tone that has understanding in it. That's clever. I like that. I like that. A tone that is what? Righteous. Righteous. Yeah. I think that's the right answer. You get an A in devilry. This is your first time at, at Blue Water. She gets an A in devilry. Puts you all to shame. And devils love shame. So, yes. 
Excellent, excellent. Yeah, I think the devil normally speaks to the world in a tone of righteousness. And humans fail to understand this. We devils must understand it really, really well. Um, everything Satan speaks into the world, not everything, but uh, in a general sort of way, everything has a moral quality to it. Satan is first and foremost a moralizer. Satan is first and foremost a preacher. So we agents of Satan need to get really good at preaching in a devilish sort of way. People expect Satan to use dark whispers. He does not. You're more likely to hear him speak in passionate justifications, preachy defiance, moral declarations. You know, he's not going to come to you and say, God doesn't exist. He's going to come to you and say, did God really say that? Isn't there a better way to understand that? Which, if you recall, is exactly what the serpent said to Eve in the garden, right? The serpent didn't come to say, don't listen to God. He said, do you think you really understood what God was about there? Like, let's, let's break it apart a little bit. Let's break it down. Let's examine this. Let me sow a little doubt. Let me sow a little twistedness. That's how he works. But in the first instance, his tone is always moral. Maybe there's an understanding tone to it. Like, be true to yourself. That sort of thing. Uh, let's read our scripture for today. We'll sort of end with this from 2 Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 11. I do like my devil protégés to be familiar with scripture. And this is a scripture written by one of our arch enemies, an apostle named Paul, who caught on, who caught on to the fact that Satan is a moralist, a false moralist, a disintegrated moralist, but a moralist nonetheless. Um, and this is what he says to the church in Corinth, who is having all sorts of trouble keeping their heads straight. I mean, that church had almost as many problems as Blue Water Mission. Uh, and so this is the advice that, that Paul gives to, to these Christians uh, who at this point in their Christian life were supposed to be maturing. Uh, the context is that uh, while Paul came in and he preached the gospel and he preached Jesus and he preached the power of the Holy Spirit, some religious people would follow him um, and try to religify the believers, try to twist the morality a little bit, get them to major on minors and to minor on majors, that sort of thing. They were talking about issues that, all, all sorts of you know, obscure Bible issues like circumcision and stuff like that. I hope you will put up with a little of my foolishness, said Paul, uh, but you are already doing that, meaning you're already putting up with foolishness. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, dang it, your minds may somehow be led astray 
from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ, that word sincere means single, your single focused devotion to Christ, your integrated devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you received a different spirit from the one you received with us, or a different gospel from the one you originally accepted, you put up with it easily enough. Somehow you're swallowing the corruption. You're putting up with a different Jesus. It's like, you knew who the Holy Spirit was, but you're putting up with a different version of the Spirit. You knew what the gospel was. It was simple and clear. And now you have this complex, disintegrated gospel. And Paul recognizes that there was the serpent's cunning in the mix-up, that Satan has been at work. But I do not think I am the least inferior to those super apostles. This was the, the religious zealots who are coming to kind of wreck the gospel in Corinth. I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. You can trust me. I'm pretty good at what I do. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? This is interesting. I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so I could serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so as surely as the truth of Christ is in me. Nobody in the regions of Achaia, that is Greece, will stop boasting of mine. Why? Is it because I do not love you? God knows I do, and I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the, thing, in the things they boast about. Here's what's going on here, if you don't track it, my young devilish protégés. After Paul came in and planted churches and raised people up in following Jesus, some moralists would follow him, and they would demand more respect. They would say, we're going to preach the gospel, we're going to run churches for you, but you're going to have to pay us. Right? It's like, we're going to have to organize. And so what they did uh, was in contrast to what Paul did, which was to come in, somebody had given him an, uh, a donation, or he came in tent making. Remember, he, he, Paul always had a side hustle. And free of charge, he would give them the gospel. Free of charge, he would do church for them. He didn't, he didn't tax them, right? He didn't use institutions to control them. Instead, he simply served them. And here's a trick, devils. If you don't demand respect, people tend not to give it to you. Jesus in his hometown had no honor. Most of Jesus' followers abandoned him on the eve of the cross. He never demanded respect, and so few people gave it to him. If you demand respect, you get it. If you control people, they give, they give you power over them. This is a little trick uh, that we can learn. Paul said, no, I just came to serve because that's what Jesus did. And you should maybe learn to respect that. He goes on to talk about these moralists. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, here it is, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Dang it! Paul nailed us. He understands it perfectly. 
It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. The servants of Satan always have a righteous tone to them. That's one of the things that give them away. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Dun, dun, dun. That's Clint Eastwood Paul. <laughs> Ending with a, a, somber, a somber note. Satan masquerades as an angel of light, and anybody under the influence of Satan will likely do the same thing. Likely try to come across as a bit of a savior, you know, as a, a light bringer, a justice bringer, a power bringer, as a, a, a security bringer. Uh, and that should make humans suspicious, um, but often it doesn't, and we can use that. Devils, when people argue with our agents in the world, we don't want to have reasoned arguments with them. If somebody disagrees with you, they're not wrong, they're evil, right? We don't tell people that their argument is inferior, we just call them evil. We call them bad. That's our wheelhouse. The moral accusations, that's where we're strong. That's where we're strong. You got it? If somebody disagrees with you, are they stupid? No, no they're evil. Right? They're evil. That's the trick that works for us. They might be stupid, but that's beside the point. <laughs> Our role as devils is to make a world full of judges, a world full of accusers and sentence bringers. We want to make a world full of judges, and Jesus' goal is to make a world full of ministers and servants. Now, you know what the agendas are. Go follow ours. The good news is we are currently in what I think is the most religious time in at least modern history. Uh, the culture, particularly in our country, in America, is entirely religious. It is entirely moralized. It is nothing but judgment and outrage and cancellation and, 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 right? So it's secular, right? But it's religious. So I think we are on the ascension. Give yourselves a hand. Well done, well done. Thus ends the lecture for today. Review, how did you do? How many of you got A's, F's? You'd like to think you're righteous enough to fail a devil test. <laughs> All right. Well, thus ends our, uh, our sermon series on how to help the devil. I'll give you uh, one piece of godly advice at the end. Um, that the, the antidote to all of this nonsense in one way, shape, or form is always grace, which is the one virtue that Satan cannot counterfeit or twist, but very few Christians understand what grace is, right? We talk about it a lot at Blue Water, so I bet some of you have, an, have a, a definition in the forefront of your mind. Grace is a very clear standard and a lot of generosity about how that standard is applied and evaluated. You have to have both sides. Satan tries to break one side off from the other. Very clear standards, and if you don't meet it, judgment, right? 
That's legalism. Or only generosity. There are no standards. It's all relative. Be true to yourself. That's not grace either, right? Grace is a very clear standard and a lot of generosity about how we use it, apply it, and encourage each other toward it. Satan cannot do that because grace is the ultimate integration. And Satan is the ultimate disintegrator. So always major on grace and you'll be fine. I just love for Blue Water Christians especially to be fluent in grace and to understand it because I think a lot of Christians live their whole life and never get it. And if you don't get grace, Satan can always come up to you and say, have you thought about this Bible verse though? Maybe you're in sin. And you're like, ah, shame. But if you're in grace, you'll be like, well, it wouldn't be the first time I'm in sin. Let me take a look at it. Let me ask some people. Let me figure it out. Let me get together with my grace community and maybe we'll all make each other a little healthier and stronger and do the world a good turn. You get the difference? Right? There's a difference in tone. There's a difference in style. Right? There's devil style and there's grace style. Now we could say Jesus style, but I just want to dial it down a little bit because Jesus style is grace style. It's what he did uniquely well. It's why he lived a sinless life and yet sinners just loved him. They just loved him, right? Uh, he did righteousness, he preached perfectly, he did miracles, but he partied with all the wrong people and, and the moralizers couldn't stand him. The moralizers killed him, right? The kingdom of God exists between the world on one hand and religion on the other, and both accuse it of wrongdoing. So grace style, that's what we want to get really good at, really good at. We have a good season coming up. Uh, we got uh, Good Friday, uh, we got Palm Sunday coming up, and then Good Friday, and then Easter. And this is a celebration of grace and sacrifice, a model for both truth and love, you know, fact and freedom. And that's what we celebrate. All right, Father, uh, we've taken a very weird discourse into devilry, but I pray that you would turn it into wisdom in our midst, and I pray that we would be uniquely resilient against the devilish schemes in society around us, and that we wouldn't fall prey to these age-old disintegrations, that we wouldn't take a favorite virtue and remove it from the other virtues. I pray that you would make us whole people. I pray that you would make our love whole, that you would make our power servant-oriented. I pray that you would make our grace abound. I pray, Lord, that we would be uh, gracious with ourselves, gracious for others, that we would be loving in a way that empowers us to be miraculous. I pray that you'd proliferate stories like the one that Butler told this morning. We're just hanging out, being a blessing to people in the park. Modeling to our young ones exactly how it's done. In Jesus' name, amen.